and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. It's Super Bowl Sunday, February 4th. Each episode, we'll bring you a look back at the highlights and top stories from the week, as well as a preview of what's to come in the week ahead, followed by a deep dive segment on issues and companies in the distressed and high-yield space. This week, we'll feature a segment on the developing Hovnanian GSO Solis case, which recently announced the expiration of its exchange offer for its 2019 notes, with around 72% of holders tendering. We'll hear more about the financial implications of this exchange for Hovnanian and Judge Laura Taylor Swain's highly anticipated ruling later in the episode, along with what's next for all the parties involved. For this week's recap, I'm joined by fellow reporter Chelsea Frankel. Welcome, Chelsea. Hey, Catherine. Great to be here. This week, almost 10 years after being taken private in a leveraged buyout, iHeartMedia skipped an $106 million coupon payment while creditors work towards a restructuring deal. The nation's largest radio network elected not to make the payment due Thursday, which kicks off a 30-day grace period during which the company and its creditors will continue to negotiate. Just one day before the coupon payment was due, Reorg reported that iHeart was making progress in its restructuring negotiations with members of the cooperation group of senior creditors. Chelsea, how close are the parties to a deal? That is an excellent question. And it's difficult to know exactly how close the parties are because while we know the company has been swapping term sheets with its senior creditors. We don't know exactly what has been in those term sheets. Um, But if we kind of start from the beginning, the company needs to restructure uh, its capital structure because they are looking at uh, year-end financials that will need to be audited, and their auditor has to determine whether or not the company can continue as a going concern. And when are those due in general? Typically, those financials would come in in early March, um, and this year the auditor is going to be considering whether or not the company can address its $5 billion um, of a term loan that's due in January of 2019. So that's something uh, that kind of sits there as a deadline in terms of the parties reaching some kind of agreement surrounding a restructuring. So back to this missed coupon payment from this past week, what are the major implications for that and for negotiations moving forward? So after almost a year of the company first launching its uh, still outstanding exchange offers, um, the company is swapping term sheets with this group that has a holdout position from those exchange offers, this cooperation group. Um, We don't know really what's in the term sheets, but we have confirmed that they're being swapped back and forth, which shows some progress since there was kind of a standstill after the group first swapped term sheets um, in October with this group. So the bid ask was really wide. There wasn't a lot of communication between the company and this group for a while. And on top of that, there was a bid ask gap between the other creditors and the cooperation group. So the cooperation group actually hosted a meeting with um, a series of other creditor groups in San Francisco in December. Everyone presented their own bid asks. And at the end of the meeting, um, 
they got a lot closer among the creditors uh, to something they would all be interested in considering. And the company was then made aware of the bid-ass that were presented in San Francisco. And after that, they sent a proposal to the co-op group. And um, since then, they've signed non-disclosure agreements, the co-op group members. They've been swapping proposals. And uh, maybe we will see something soon. And is there another deadline for this coupon payment that they just skipped? So they entered into a 30-day grace period, but the junior creditors that are owed the coupon payment are aware that the senior creditors and the cooperation group agreed to continue negotiations um, under non-disclosure agreements with the company toward a resolution um, if the company didn't make that coupon payment. So it's possible that knowing um, this means that the company could be getting closer to a consensual resolution that those junior creditors would be willing to give the company more time if they can't reach a resolution by the end of the 30-day grace period. And we'll definitely be tracking the progress of those negotiations as the situation moves forward. It was also an active week for Teva Pharmaceuticals, which announced an amendment to its term loan and revolving credit facility, and it struck a long-awaited settlement agreement with Allergan. Earlier in the week, the company filed a registration statement with the SEC for $5 billion of debt securities. It's unclear, however, what the future issuances of the company's debt would look like or Teva's plans for the use of proceeds. Teva also announced the closing of its previously announced sale to CVC Partners of a portfolio of products from its global women's health business for over $700 million in cash. The announcement marks the completion of Teva's planned divestment of its specialty products in women's health, which to date has generated a total of $2.5 billion of proceeds. Teva's settlement with Allergan brought in another $700 million, which Teva is expected to receive during the first quarter of this year. Teva says it expects to use the cash for repayment of a portion of its term loan debt. The agreement also means that Teva and Allergan will jointly dismiss the working capital dispute arbitration, as well as claims under the master purchase agreement from July of 2015. And you mentioned some amendments to its debt as well, right? Yeah, that's right, Chelsea. Uh, Teva also announced that it completed amendments to its U.S. dollar and Japanese yen term loan and revolving credit facilities, increasing the minimum leverage ratio from the current five times to 5.9 times for the third and fourth quarter of this year. Teva's CEO said the amendment is an important part of the company's plan to obtain additional flexibility with its credit facilities and to manage its capital structure. However, as part of the amendment, lenders under its U.S. dollar loan reduced commitments by $1.5 billion. The pharmaceutical company is scheduled to report its fourth quarter earnings this Thursday, so we'll wait for those numbers. But in the meantime, everyone can listen to last week's podcast, where Reorg analyzed the major issues that Teva faces. Meanwhile... On the debt-ridden island of Puerto Rico, the PROMESA Oversight Board filed a motion looking to obtain for the island's electric utility, PREPA, $1.3 billion of post-petition financing from the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. The motion asks to borrow up to $550 million on an interim basis pending the entry of the final financing order. 
These borrowed amounts would be senior to PREPA's existing power revenue bonds and would be secured by a perfected first priority priming lien on all of PREPA's revenues and treated as a super priority administrative claim. Without the funds, PREPA warned that it may be forced to cease operation, noting that its general fund cash balance would be negative by mid-February, which could result in a funding gap of around a billion dollars by early April. Creditors, including the ad hoc groups of PREPA and general obligation bondholders, filed objections expressing a strong opposition to PREPA's post-petition financing motion, raising challenges to the need for such financing, the sufficiency of the proposed adequate protection, the marketing process of the financing, and the request for priming liens. Parties are also in a disagreement over what the court should and should not consider in connection with the financing motion. I'd also add that on Friday night, Judge Swain denied the oversight board's motion to limit what could be heard at the hearing, uh, siding with the creditors in that last dispute you noted. And... At the start of the week, Bonton released cleansing materials following the expiration of a non-disclosure agreement with certain secondly note holders. Chelsea, this is another name you cover. Can you fill us in on the situation? So the company announced this week um, that its forbearance agreement with creditors had expired, which means uh, their agreement uh, for their creditors to forbear on enforcing the default from the company missing its interest payment had expired. And uh, the company had said in its cleansing materials that they anticipate a filing by February 4th. So that's something we're looking for. Um, and I think what's notable is that uh, the company has not reached an agreement with its creditors. Um, they have they disclosed that in their last cleansing. And uh, they didn't disclose any counterproposals from their creditors. So it, it doesn't really indicate that they um, have a back and forth and are looking towards a consensual deal. And separately, it's probably good to note that Bonton disclosed 42 stores will close under a previously communicated store rationalization program. And in total, the company CEO said the retailer expects to close 47 of its stores, which is almost 20% of its store base earlier this year. Speaking of filings, we saw bookend Chapter 11s this week, including Senvio, which filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York on Friday morning, and Rand Logistics, which filed a prepackaged plan in Delaware on Monday night. Senvio, the printing and envelope manufacturer, announced that it entered into a restructuring support agreement with a group of first lien creditors holding 55% of outstanding first lien notes, but only 2% of the second lien notes. The RSA gives 99.5% of the reorganized equity to first lien note holders. However, Brigade Capital Management, which holds 16% of first lien notes and 66% of second lien notes, does not support the terms of the RSA. The firm expresses several concerns regarding the proposed dip financing, including potential insider transactions, the debtor's entry into the RSA itself, and the company's business plan that serves as the foundation of the purported valuation and resulting creditor recoveries. Brigade and Senvio both say they are prepared to engage in good faith negotiations in the hopes of reaching a consensual resolution in these Chapter 11 cases. 
Senvio disclosed term sheets made prior to the filing that were exchanged between it and Brigade, which contemplated giving second lien holders warrants for 25% of the company. Reorg will host a webinar on Senvio's filing this Tuesday afternoon, February 6th, so be sure to tune into that. Our top red stories of the week were, one, Puerto Rico, PREPA seeks to borrow up to $1.3 billion from the Commonwealth, two, Puerto Rico again, Judge Swain dismisses GO bondholder lawsuit, and three, Havnanian, the court denies Solis's preliminary injunction request to block the Havnanian GSO refinancing transactions. And now, I'll pass it over to our reporter, Jim Holloway, broadcasting from Houston, for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Ms. Catherine, and yes, this is James Holloway in Houston, Texas. Super Bowl. Can't say it's captured the attention of the Bayou City, though we do wish the Brady Kid best of luck in his quest for another ring. Bless his heart. Focus here is on the Houston Livestock and Rodeo Show, where you can observe prize-winning steers before they're led to that great pasture in the sky. Buy yourself a deep-fried butter on a stick, and yes, it is as good as it sounds. My daughter's participating in the great Texas sport of mutton-busting, that is, mounting a sheep and hanging on for dear life life while the creature scurries across the feedlot. Her best time is 40 seconds. We're all hoping she can top that. And there's no shortage of excitement in the world of restructuring. Led by Bonton, as my colleagues discussed earlier, widely expected to become the next fashion victim. Developing as Mr. Drudge likes to say. And on Monday, February 5th, there's another forbearance expiration, this one in Puerto Rico, and it's for the Commonwealth Ports Authority, which is known by its acronym of PRIFA, P-R-I-F-A. And as long as we're on the subject of acronyms, the P-U-C-T, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but it means Public Utility Commission of Texas, issues a staff recommendation regarding the combination of Dynagy and Vistra. On Tuesday, February 6th, there's an omnibus hearing in the Toys Matter and a visit from the ghost of Crisis's past with closing arguments in the Lehman Brothers RMBS cases. At stake, of course, is the issue of claims estimation with a not inconsequential spread between the two parties. That's just like in 2008, come to think of it. And on Wednesday, February 7th, an omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico. Rather, it's in New York for the Puerto Rico cases. And we're expecting a disclosure statement hearing for C-Drill. That was the date set on January 24th, but it has yet to appear on the online calendar of Judge Jones here in Houston. My friend and colleague Harvard Jang out of our London office reported last week that a bondholder in the creditors group has not agreed to a waiver of privilege that would facilitate negotiations between the company and stakeholders, which looks to impede the debtor's alternative discussion proposal. Also on Wednesday, earnings from Hornbeck Offshore are due, which is followed by earnings call at 10 a.m. on Thursday, February 8th. Hornbeck's always interesting. CEO Todd Hornbeck has been nothing if not blunt over the past few years in his bleak assessments of the offshore industry. In his third quarter, the company reported sequential improvements in utilization and day rates, but Todd said that wasn't likely to last. Be interested to see what he says now. There's, of course, been the big rally in crude, which has not gone, gone unnoticed by the markets. Goldman, I believe, is forecasting $80 a barrel in six months. And there's also been some big discoveries in the Gulf from the likes of uh, Total and Shell and Chevron. Thursday morning also brings earnings from Tava Pharmaceuticals, in which you're all experts after last week's podcast hosted by our head of research, Mark Fisher, as well as from Bristow, an oil field services company which moves people from ship to shore with its fleet of helicopters. 
Also on the subject of energy, I should mention that this week in Houston is the North American Prospect Expo, better known as NAEP, at which oilmen buy, sell, and trade prospects. It's one of those places to see and be seen if you're in the oil industry and generally have a good old time. So if any listeners are in town and need a recommendation for anything from brisket to boudin to chicken fried steak, just give me a holler and I'll tell you not just where to go, but how to get there. And it looks like the magic hour of 6.30 p.m. is drawing nigh in Foxborough in Philadelphia, so it's time to turn on the TV and see if I can find myself a rerun of Bassmasters. This is Jim Holloway in the great state of Texas. Thank you for listening, and if the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise, hope to see you all next week. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now, Reorg's been following the Hovnanian Solis case closely for our subscribers. Teresa Lee, legal analyst at Reorg, sat down with the team to learn more about the home builder's situation, its recent GSO-backed refinancing, and Judge Swain's decision to let it go forward despite opposition from Solis. Hello, and welcome to another Reorg Research Podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the GSO-backed refinancing of Havnanian Enterprises, whether it poses an existential threat to the credit default swap market, and whether it will serve as a blueprint for future creative restructurings. I'm Teresa Lee, a legal analyst at Reorg Research, and I have with me today the team covering Havnanian Enterprises, including legal analyst Ana Lucia Hurtado, financial analyst Nick Williams, and reporter Chase Collum. So let's get right into it. Havnanian's business generally covers two distinct operations. Home building, in which the company markets and builds homes for a variety of buyers. And financial services, in which the company provides mortgage loans and title services to customers of its home building operations. In late December, Havnanian announced a series of transactions in concert with GSO that are intended to address the company's 2019 debt maturities. However, part of the transaction contemplates manufacturing a credit default swap credit event. Solis filed a lawsuit against Havnanian seeking to halt the transactions and alleging that they will completely undermine the entire CDS market. Following a preliminary injunction hearing on Thursday, January 25th, which Reorg attended, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued an opinion denying Solis's attempt to halt the transactions. So let's start with a bit about the company and why it finds itself here. One of the things I found interesting about last week's hearing is that CFO J. Larry Swarsby actually stated that he had consulted, quote, bankruptcy counsel in 2016. In addition, during testimony last week, Swarsby continually stated that if this refinancing was halted, the company would have real difficulty finding alternatives. So Chase, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening here? Why is Havnanian still struggling a decade after the housing bust? Right. Thanks, Teresa. It's really a family business. The CEO, Ara Havnanian, is the son of the company's founder. As one can likely imagine, as a result of his belonging to the founding family, there were and continue to be strong incentives for management to avoid filing for bankruptcy. Low market cap and a heavy uh, debt burden made it difficult for the company to benefit from the availability of low-cost land as the market began to recover. To raise cash, Havnanian sold some of its inventory into a land bank in its first transaction with GSO. 
This was after one of the firm's founders reportedly approached Arahavnanian and told him that CDS traded against the company was priced at a level indicating investors' belief that there was a 93% chance the company would default on its debt. That is according to an institutional investor profile. So missteps such as the company's forced discount sales of speculative homes that failed to attract buyers in several eastern states led lenders to crank up yields on Havnanian's bonds in 2015. Even last year, as Soresby testified, when Havnanian completed a refinancing of just under $800 million in senior secured debt, yields were higher than the company would have liked. Sorsby said that this was part of the reason the company was so eager to avoid another bank-led refinancing process and so attracted to the GSO offer. Coming back to your question about bankruptcy counsel, in a 2015 interview, Arahavnanian told the Wall Street Journal that bankruptcy was, quote, absolutely not a possibility. Though, as we found out in court through Mr. Sorsby's testimony, it apparently was very much a possibility just one year later in 2016. So, Nick, even with all the bankruptcy talk from the company's CFO, Havnanian's bonds are actually close to par. When I looked earlier this week, its secured debt due 2022 yields about 6%. What is the company's liquidity profile, and what are some of the longer-term issues that it's trying to address with this GSO-backed refinancing? So, as Chase mentioned, Havnanian has really struggled with its debt load since the financial crisis. And it's not so much that the company has a liquidity issue right now. Havnanian has almost $500 million in cash on its balance sheet, as it is that as a result of having spent the last 10 years or so facing risky refinancing after risky refinancing, its capital structure is complex and has a number of maturities coming due in 2019. Over the last few years, Havnanian has used, in part, a combination of the financed land JVs and cash generated from operations to address maturities. Unfortunately, that has left the company with limited opportunities to grow or even maintain revenue, as it has been limited in its ability to buy new land to build on. In a 2016 call with investors, when asked about Havnanian's community accounts, Soresby said an uptick would take place in 2018. However, last year, Soresby cautioned investors that revenue growth is more likely in 2019 rather than 2018. So, coming back to this transaction, the company saw an opportunity to work with a willing partner in GSO to address its 2019 maturities and really clean up its capital structure in a wholesale fashion. With the caveat that, at least according to Solus, it received favorable terms on this refinancing because it manufactured this CDS credit event that will benefit GSO. For any high-yield issuer, reducing debt while the underlying business is not particularly growing can be a challenging undertaking, but Havnanian has at times delayed or foregone capital investment projects in order to pay down debt and has used a variety of levers to garnish its liquidity. Actually, one of these levers led to the initiation of the Havnanian-GSO relationship. As I mentioned a moment ago, in 2012, the company signed its first, quote, land banking deal. Basically, if you're Havnanian or any home builder, the land that you own is incredibly is an incredibly precious commodity. Simplifying a little, land is the key raw material that Havnanian needs to develop its product. But that land is expensive to keep on its balance sheet. So Havnanian and GSO came up with a scheme where GSO would buy the land from Havnanian and sell them an option to buy the land back at a later date. 
These deals, along with a number of joint ventures, have been key in allowing Havnini to last this long. And again, that brings us back to this latest transaction, which really the key piece is this exchange offer that they announced at the end of December. Without getting into too much detail, the core part of the exchange was the company's offer to exchange $185 million of its $236 million in 8% notes due November of 2019 for some cash, a relatively high coupon 13.5% note due 2026, and a low coupon 5% note due 2040. GSO also, as part of the transaction, agreed to fund a term loan, which would redeem any 8% notes not taken out in the exchange, as well as a number of other small refinancings. The result of all of this is that the company pushed out almost $400 million of debt from 2019 to mature in 2026 and beyond. So there's another part to the exchange, too. Uh, This is something that Solis calls the creation of a rigged bond, and Solis says that this could totally undermine the CDS market. Right, that's true. And so we mentioned that rig bond, or at least I mentioned it not explicitly a second ago, this 5% note due 2040. But before we get to that, let's focus on one other aspect of this. Not all of the 8% notes will be retired. As part of the exchange offer, a subsidiary of Hnanian will purchase 26 million of the 8% notes, and the new notes to be issued in the exchange contain a covenant preventing the company from making interest payments on that $26 million in face amount of 8% notes that its subsidiary has just bought. The company admitted in December that, quote, the non-payment of interest on such purchased 8% notes may result in the occurrence of a credit event under certain credit default swap contracts entered into by third parties, resulting in significant monetary exposure for those entities that sold such credit default swaps, end quote. So, GSO has this deal set up. It knows it's going to get this credit event, but for its CDS to really pay off, it needs there to be a bond that is trading way below par. I see. So now we get to the rigged bond. So why is Solis saying that this 5% rigged bond structure poses an existential threat to the CDS market? Okay. So imagine a conventional CDS payout. If a company files for bankruptcy, CDS will pay out and often will see the unsecured debt trading way below par, say, for example, 40 cents on the dollar. Simplifying a little, A buyer of CDS protection will be paid $0.60 following a default, less its cost to buy and maintain its CDS position. Here, GSO needed a Havnanian bond that would trade like that $0.40 on the dollar bankrupt bond that we just provided the analogy for. It hopes that the especially crafted 5% note due 2040 will trade in that type of range. So Solus, in its complaint and in court, really highlighted the potential for this exchange offer to be a template for future transactions. So taking transactions completely apart from this GSO and Hovnanian example. And you know, I think they have a valid point here. CDS, credit default swaps, were really set up to mirror the credit exposure that a company could get from bonds or loans. Solus' argument is that this Hovnanian transaction is a threat to the CDS market because it, to a meaningful extent, it is decoupling the CDS market from the underlying bond market. Despite Hovnanian bonds trading like a healthy-ish, high-yield issuer, its CDS is trading much wider, at levels where CDS would conventionally trade on a company that is, one, very likely to file for bankruptcy, 
and two, very likely to meaningfully impair unsecured creditors. Solis' argument is that if any hedge fund or any CDS market participant can enter into undisclosed negotiations with an issuer and then have the company or issuer just announce one day that it's entering into a refinancing with the side effect of triggering a CDS credit event that is going to meaningfully impair CDS protection sellers, that possibility poses this, quote, existential threat to the CDS market. So what is the role that this so-called rigged bond plays in the overall GSO-backed transaction? The rigged bond aspect of the GSO Havnanian deal is actually what kicks things up a notch, since it's a unique feature that wasn't present in either iHeart or Coderre. The idea is that the long-term and low-yield 5% notes that would be issued as part of the transaction would ultimately enable GSO to maximize its CDS payout by operation of the cheapest-to-deliver bond rule. Taking a step back, as Nick already discussed, Havnanian has agreed to default on a May 1st $1.04 million interest payment to its subsidiary Sunrise Trail, and this default is expected to lead to a failure-to-pay credit event. Then, if and when a CDS protection purchaser thinks that a failure-to-pay credit event has occurred, it can request the ISDA's Determinations Committee to make a determination on that. If the DC determines, as the parties at the hearing expect, that a credit event has occurred, ISDA would then hold an auction to determine the final price for settlement of the CDS referencing Havnanian securities. That would then give protection sellers like Solus two options. They could either take physical delivery at par value of the Havnanian securities owned by the protection buyer here, GSO, and others that are similarly situated, or they can make a cash payment. That cash payment is based on a formula derived from the difference between the auction price and the par value of the cheapest to deliver bond which in this case would likely be the 5% bond, or at least according to Solis, GSO hopes it will be the 5% bond. So in a simple example, if the bond is trading at 40, Solis can either pay 100 cents for the bond trading at 40, or cash settle and pay the net amount, 60 cents, into the CDS protection buyer, uh, GSO. A hard outcome to stomach given where Havnanian's other unsecured debt is trading. So, in short, Solus's claim here is that by including the rigged bond as part of the transaction, GSO has engineered a way to generate and maximize windfall returns for itself, all at the expense of protection sellers like Solus. So, what are the terms under which this situation lent itself to this opportunity? Well, as we've kind of started alluding to uh, here a little bit, the backdrop of this whole this whole transaction and subsequent dispute is really the ISTA-related landscape and the ISTA credit determination rules. Uh, these rules are um, really what govern CDS contracts. So, for example, under a standard ISTA CDS contract, there is only a $1 million threshold for failure to pay credit event, whereas generally bond indentures and credit agreements, as relating to cross-default provisions, will have a higher threshold for failure to pay. For instance, Havnanian's lowest threshold for failure to pay cross-default is $10 million. So by having Havnanian default on a $1.04 million interest payment, just over the $1 million threshold amount, 
GSO could have Hovnanian trigger a failure to pay credit event while simultaneously ensuring that it won't be triggering a bunch of disastrous cross defaults for the rest of its capital structure. Another circumstance in play here was GSO's status as a significant holder of the 8% notes involved in the exchange. In fact, at the preliminary injunction hearing, the testimony from GSO Senior Managing Director Ryan Mollett revealed GSO and Barclays combined held enough notes to meet the minimum exchange threshold. And as a result, Hamnanian would really only need these two parties, GSO and Barclays, to tender their bonds into the exchange to get it done. The point being that from GSO's perspective, this trade might have been a little bit more difficult to engineer in a larger capital structure where the fund might have needed more support for the exchange from other bondholders in the market. Finally, as Solus alleges in its complaint, another facet that plays into the creation of this opportunity for GSO is the transaction's creation of a package that combines the 13.5% notes, which are expected to be valued around or even above par, with the 5% notes that are expected to be valued below par. By structuring the deal this way, Havnanian and GSO created a package that was on average attractive to other investors considering tendering into the exchange offer, while simultaneously engineering a way to maximize GSO's CDS recovery because of the cheapest to deliver bond. All of this put GSO in a position to share some of the benefits of the transaction through its agreement to provide Havnanian with below market financing that was, according to the company, substantially better than all the other deals they had on the table. So on Thursday, uh, January 11th, Solus Alternative Asset Management filed a lawsuit against Havnanian and GSO seeking to block this refinancing scheme. Ana Lucia, um, you're dialing in from our DC office. Can you tell us a little bit about what Solus wants here? In the grand scheme of things, what Solus ideally wanted was to block the Havnanian transactions from going forward, or at, at the very least, to prevent the deal from closing with that promise to default and the so-called rigged bond that, that has been discussed already. As a first step, Solis had sought the preliminary injunction in the near term. However, the ultimate goal or the hope through the litigation was to permanently enjoin the deal, at least in its form with all of its key features. But like I said, that was the hope. And as you mentioned earlier this week, Judge Swain denied Solis's request for a preliminary injunction. And on Friday morning, February 2nd, the company announced that the transaction had in fact closed. And in light of Judge Swain's ruling, Solis actually filed an amended complaint already this past Thursday evening. The revised complaint gets rid of Solis's prior request for preliminary and permanent injunctive relief, but it does leave in Solis's request for an unspecified amount of compensatory damages and punitive damages. The amended complaint also gets rid of the prior Section 14E disclosure-related material misrepresentation claim that Solis had brought under the Securities Exchange Act and that had been included in the original complaint. And instead, it replaces that claim with two declaratory judgment claims. Now, Solis is also making various claims that GSO and Havnanian are engaging in securities fraud. Can you explain those claims a little bit? Sure. So the securities law claims that are still in the amended complaint are Solis's scheme to defraud claims. 
Those are brought under Section 10B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and also certain of the subsections of Rule 10B-5. And that rule makes it uh, unlawful to, quote, employ any device, scheme, or artifice to defraud or engage in any act that would operate as a fraud or deceit in connection with the sale of any security. So the, the scheme to defraud claims focus on Solis's allegations about the manipulative scheme to manufacture this, what they call the sham payment default, and also goes to the heart of the, the whole the issuance of the so-called rigged bond designed to maximize GSO's CDS payment, as we discussed before. And as I mentioned a little bit ago, the original complaint had included another securities claim, but that disclosure-related claim has been eliminated and it's been replaced with two declaratory judgment counts. The first one of those seeks a declaration that Sunrise Trail has waived its entitlement to interest payments on its notes and that Havnanian's failure to pay the interest on those notes to Sunrise on May 1st doesn't constitute an event of default under the indenture. Sunrise Trail, uh, as we discussed, is the sub that is acquiring $26 million of Havnanian's 8% notes through the transactions that have now closed. And the second new claim in the amended complaint, it seeks a declaration that the exchange offer breaches a section of the 8% notes indenture, stating that Havnanian and its affiliates may acquire the 8% notes by means other than redemption so long as that acquisition doesn't otherwise violate the terms of the 8% notes indenture. And that indenture requires Havnanian to pay any interest on the 8% notes on the dates that such payments are due. So Solis is therefore arguing that Sunrise Trail's acquisition of the notes while waiving its entitlement to payment of the interest on those notes constitutes a breach of the indenture. The only other claim in the amended complaint is the prior claim for tortious interference with Solis's prospective economic benefits from its CDS contracts. Now, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued her opinion this past Monday, January 29th, and she denied Solis's preliminary injunction motion. Can you explain this a little bit more? What does it mean for Havnanian? In short, Judge Swain's denial means that she won't block the Havnanian GSO transactions from closing, like Solis had hoped. There's a few key points worth unpacking. First is why Solis lost. And what Judge Swain said in her opinion is that Solis had failed to show that it would be irreparably harmed without the preliminary injunction. Instead, the judge concluded that if Solis were to eventually win on its claims, it could simply be compensated with monetary damages for the amount of economic harm that it suffered, or suffers, rather. And her reasoning for that ruling was that because the impact of the Havnanian GSO transaction is essentially economic, rather than it being one affecting corporate control, ownership, or governance, then this whole notion of having to unscramble the deal to restore the parties to their pre-transaction positions wasn't necessary to remedy any harm to Solus if it prevails on its claims. 
So, and like I mentioned, the important takeaway is that this means the transaction can go forward with all of its features. So Hovnanian doesn't have to worry about having to go back to the market empty-handed in search of a, a completely new refinancing deal. The court's ruling, though, does leave open the possibility that the defendants, Havnanian, GSO, or both, may eventually have to pay a certain amount of money damages to Solis should the hedge fund ultimately show that the defendants violated the law and that it's entitled to damages. But in a nutshell, Judge Swain's ruling is significant because it signals a sort of forced shift in Solis's mission from let's block this deal to let's get money damages. So with respect to the impact on the broader CDS market, the judge made a few interesting findings. Judge Swain ruled that any proliferation of engineered defaults that did occur could likely be mitigated by actions on the part of ISDA. The judge also said she was not persuaded that ISDA is quote, so powerless to act in an effective way with respect to the effect of intentional defaults on the CDS market as to require an injunction by this court to prevent irreparable damage to the CDS marketplace. In the same vein, Judge Swain also found that CDS market participants are empowered to create rules to mitigate risks through changes to ISDA documentation, policies, and procedures. What kind of changes was she referring to, and what does this mean for the ability of future parties to use the Havnanian transaction as a template for future refinancings? Sure. So let's talk first about what Judge Swain was referring to. At the January 25th evidentiary hearing, we heard at least two suggestions for ways that ISGA could avoid issues like this in the future. One way would be to exempt payments due to affiliates from triggering a credit event. Uh, And another way would be to raise the threshold amount for an ISDA failure to pay from uh, the $1 million where it's currently set at to an amount that's more in line with default triggering events under debt documents, say $25 million or so. Now, one of the things that Solis had suggested is that all other CDS market participants would be forced to bear the risk and would essentially pay a tax on future CDS prices as a result of this transaction. Solis had also suggested that this transaction, like like you mentioned, would serve as a template for future refinancings. This, according to Solis, would introduce too much risk into the market, and Solis had also argued that it would be impossible for CDS issuers to account for that risk in their pricing. As for the second part of your question, um, you know, it's interesting. At the hearing, GSO's expert witness testified that in his view, CFOs would be remiss not to look at this type of transaction in the future when considering you know, all of the options and opportunities available to, to their companies. Of course, Judge Swain's ruling doesn't rule out the possibility that there could still be money damages granted to Solis after all is said and done here. If that ends up being the ending to the story, that could still serve as a deterrent to refinancing companies considering this type of transaction. So, Analysia, what are the next steps in this litigation then, and what can we expect to see happening in the next few days or weeks? 
Now that Judge Swain has ruled on Solis' preliminary injunction request, there aren't any more hearings scheduled before the district court, at least at, at this time. Solis issued a statement on Tuesday where it made clear that even though it lost on its preliminary injunction motion, it fully intends to move forward with its litigation and, quote, the process of adjudicating this fraudulent scheme. And actually, just two days after that statement, uh, it filed its amended complaint. Solis's statement didn't mention whether the fund is considering whether to appeal the preliminary injunction ruling or not. Barring an appeal by Solis, the next major step in this action will probably involve the defendant's attempts to get Solis's lawsuit thrown out of the out of the court. Havnanian and GSO have actually already previewed early on in the litigation, including at the first hearing before Judge Swain on January 11th, that they intend to seek dismissal of Solis's lawsuit. Magistrate Judge Barbara Moses, who's in charge of pretrial management for the case, has already scheduled a teleconference with the party's counsel for this upcoming Monday, February 5th, and they're going to be discussing a briefing schedule for the motions to dismiss. If Judge Swain were to ultimately side with the defendants on those motions, then we could see the lawsuit get dismissed either in its entirety or have its scope substantially narrowed. Thanks, Ana Lucia. And thank you also to Nick and Chase for joining me on today's podcast. Of course, we will continue to monitor Havnanian's credit profile. Clearly, whether the exchange is stick or if the company is required to pay any monetary damages will affect the company's liquidity and potential path forward. Like some of the litigation surrounding other exchange offers we've seen in cases like iHeart, Windstream, and J.Crew, this sounds like an extremely fluid and fast-moving situation. We'll be watching closely for any and all developments as the situation evolves. Thank you to our listeners, and join us next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. Good luck to all you New England Patriots fans out there, and Philly Eagles too. I'm Catherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.